Now, today is the second week of the Advent season. There's a little bit of confusion whether this is the week of faith or the week of peace. Some traditions have it as the week of faith and others have it as the week of peace. Well, because I built a whole message on the uh, faith, we're going to hear that one instead, okay? And we can swap them out next week if we so desire. But as you know, faith seems to be in short supply today, doesn't it? How many of you know that we are to be the, the most faithful and the most faith-filled uh, of all the peoples on the earth, we as Christ followers? But we know that sometimes our faith leaks, doesn't it? And it really leaks when we put our faith in things like the government or politics or even in other people or even in ourselves. Every time I do that, my faith folds quicker than an over-caffeinated origami artist. And that's never, ever a good thing. And so this Advent season, I want us to take some time to really reboot, to really refresh, and to really rehydrate our faith by putting it into the only person who is ultimately faith-worthy, and that is Jesus Christ himself. Now, there are plenty, plenty of stories in the Gospels uh, which demonstrate and prove that Jesus Christ is the only ultimate faith-worthy person. But my favorite story in the Gospels is the one found in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 10. I will read it to you now. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord! He said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. This is the word of God for the people of God. Jesus enters into um, a town named Capernaum, a very important town. It was founded in 200 B.C. as a Roman defense city. Uh, Rome had posted a garrison there. Now, a garrison is about approximately 100 uh, soldiers, and they were led or commanded by a centurion. Now, centurions were very important in the Roman military structure because not only did they keep discipline in the ranks, but they commit, uh, carried out uh, orders from on high. This was also a very important place for Jesus's ministry. He seemed to hub there, if you will. He made Capernaum a ministry center, for there was a temple there. And we are told throughout the Gospels that he frequent the place often, and he did many healings, many miracles, and much teaching there as well. Well, this centurion comes to Jesus and 
By the way, you would think of a captain in our military structure today. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, I have a need. Now, what's interesting here is that he goes to Jesus not because he wants to love God or know more about God or even that he desires God. He comes to Jesus not asking the question, how is it that I can be saved? doesn't ask for that question. And he doesn't come with theological questions like Nicodemus did in John chapter 3. No, he goes to Jesus because he thinks that Jesus can meet one of his needs. How many of you know that's not a bad motivation to go to Jesus? Amen? I have a need, Lord, and you're about the only one I know who can solve my problem. Now, he goes to Jesus, and it wasn't even a personal need. It was a need for somebody he cared about deeply, and that is one of his servants. My servant lays at home, and you know what? He's, in, he's immobile, and he's in terrible suffering. Sounds like me on Monday mornings, actually. Okay, if I have to pause, it's probably not worth it, right? So nonetheless, because Jesus Christ's mission is to grant life and life more abundantly, and because Jesus Christ is the great physician of not only the soul, but also the body, he says to the centurion, where does he live? I'm on my way. I'm going. I will go and heal him. But before Jesus can reorder his busy schedule, he says to the, the centurion says to him, No, Lord, no. I am in no way remotely deserving of you coming to my house or under my roof. Now, this man might be a military commander. He might be a captain of some sort. Uh, he might have to keep discipline of many men. But he doesn't have a hard heart. In fact, he's a humbled person. And we know from places like 1 Peter 5.5, 5, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace unto the humble. And Jesus is ready to give grace unto this man and his particular request. And then all of a sudden, the uh, centurion objects and says, no, Lord, don't do that. You don't have to do it. As awesome as it would be for you to come and visit my household, not necessary. All that you have to do is say the word, and my servant will be healed. Now, verse 9 of our text gives us kind of a certain logic of what the centurion was saying. And that was simply this. He says to Jesus, like you, I am a man under authority. How many know it's always good to be under authority? Put your hand up if you believe that. My servants and my soldiers, when I give them certain tasks and certain commands, they are obliged to fulfill those commandments. I am under the authority of Caesar in Rome. But you, Lord, you are also under authority yourself. Now, where in the world did he get this? Or how in the world did he recognize how this authority plays kind of in the universe? How did he spot something? And throughout the Gospels, 
We don't see anything at all regarding this kind of insight into Jesus' life other than from a military man, a centurion. Since you are under God's authority, Jesus, all you have to do is say the word. Say the word. Because your words are under your authority, and therefore they are under God's authority. So if you say those particular words, you don't have to come, you don't have to travel, you don't have to bother yourself, you don't have to busy yourself. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. Now, if you're Jesus and you're thinking about this and you're, you're encountered with that, kind of what would you do? I mean, Jesus is flat out impressed by the faith of this particular centurion. Not only is he connecting the authority dots and how it actually works, how God has set it up, but how in the world did this particular centurion know that if Jesus just spoke the word, then his servant would be healed? Now, we know because we're such ardent Bible believers, amen? Put your hand up if you're a Bible believer this morning, right? And you certainly understand Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, right? The whole world, the whole physical, material, and spiritual world came into existence because God spoke it, right? So the centurion knows something about the authority of God in speaking things into existence. And if Jesus will only speak into existence the words of healing, his servant would be healed. But here's kind of the irony or the upshot of this particular faith. At this point in the Gospels, Jesus had never voicemailed a miracle before. Jesus was always in the proximity of, or he touched somebody or spoke directly to them. Why does he think this can happen like this? Is kind of an insight into the power and the authority of Jesus himself. Now Jesus is there, and he is so impressed by this particular man's faith that he walks away like, whoa, somebody's finally getting it. Somebody understands who I am, and somebody understands what I can do on their behalf. After this exchange with the centurion, Jesus turns around and he looks at his followers and he says, I have never seen such great faith in all of Israel. Now that is an unusual statement, right? Now I want you to uh, replace that statement. I have not seen as such great faith in the church, right? Because here's all the people following Jesus who at this point did see him do miracles, who were marveling at his teachings, could, could just absolutely absorb who he was and understand who he was. And Jesus says they don't even have the faith that he demonstrated at that point. Now, in verse 13, we have the results of Jesus just speaking the word of healing about the servant. Before we move on, you've got to cap capture this, okay? So let's go ahead and flip that up. Verse 13, I believe it is, yes. He said, then Jesus said to the centurion, it will be done just as you believed it. Everybody say, believe it. Believe it. Amen. All right. And his servant was healed that very hour. Before the centurion even, you know, checked off the clock and went home to recover or to recline, his servant was already healed. 
Now that's an incredible display of faith, isn't it? How many know that Jesus is always, always impressed by faith? Put your hand up if you know that. Okay, so there are three things um, that I see in this text, whereas Jesus was able to classify this man's faith as being great faith. Now, let me just add, uh, ask a little survey here. Who has kind of like uh, normal faith? You believe God exists. Not, not much more than that. God's up here, we're down here, and uh, that's faith, right? Right? We can't see God, smell God, taste God, hear God, feel God, but we do believe he exists. Anybody here have normal faith? Put your hand up. You wouldn't even be here if you didn't, right? But who is kind of a, kind of a, a regular faith that, you know what, I kind of live my life and I live it how I want to, and then if I get in trouble, I can phone into God and hopefully he'll answer my prayer. Anybody have that faith? Put your other hand up, right? But who here has extraordinary or great faith. Jesus can do everything that he has promised that he will do. Good, four of you do. That's fantastic. That's a great start, isn't it? But Jesus labeled or he classified or entitled this man's faith as being great. And I see three particular reasons. Okay, the first reason simply is this man had great faith because it was so surprising. It was so surprising. I want you to think back a little bit. This is a centurion. He is a Gentile. He's not a Jew. He's not a Christian. He's a pagan. And yet, he demonstrated more faith than the people who are supposed to have faith ever, ever demonstrated. He had this surprising faith. And it was surprising because being a Gentile, he never knew the mighty acts of God through history or revealed in the Old Testament, particularly the Torah and the Psalms and the prophets. But yet he believed. He believed. That's why Jesus snarked back to his uh, followers. He's never seen this kind of faith. He believes in who I am and what I can do. And you know what? He's not even supposed to. In fact, the people who were supposed to have the most faith in who Jesus was and what he could do possessed little faith or no faith. Myriad of times in the Gospels, those people who absolutely, absolutely were exposed to God's mighty acts in Scripture, who saw Jesus' powerful right hand of miracles and healing and all that, they doubted him the most. And this is what's so surprising that the people who are supposed to have the most faith sometimes don't, and the people who are not supposed to have any faith sometimes do. This is incredible. And Jesus really, really comments on that. So his faith was very, very surprising. Romans 10, 17 tells us that faith cometh by hearing, in hearing of the word of God. But you know what? This guy never heard the word of God. But what he did know is, even though he was never allowed in the temple in Capernaum, he did see people come out of that temple healed. He did hear uh, people coming out talking about how majestic and how amazing Jesus' sermons were. So he had some kind of word and, and, or some kind of understanding. And so immediately his faith attached to who Jesus was and what he could do. And that's one reason why 
his faith was considered great by Jesus himself. The second reason why uh, he had great faith was that it was other-oriented. It was others-oriented. Think about it, if you will. Of all the things a centurion could take, right, to Jesus, believing who he, who he was and, and what he could do, he doesn't put his needs first. He puts others' needs before his. How many think that's impressive? How many think that's great? How many know that our faith is for other people, right? Hello, right? Sometimes we so personalize or individual, individualize, and sometimes we so, so self-center our faith that we forget that we have the gift of faith not just for ourselves, but for the sake of others. Amen? Now, I'm going to send out a, uh, two really important points here. Of course, of course, of course, we need to have faith for ourselves, right? Right? We have to apprehend, we have to grasp, we have to hug, we have to hold the promises of God for ourselves like there's no, not, no other thing's going to happen unless... We do. But we got to be very careful. And even as I look into my own life, even when I do this, I'm going to record my thoughts and my prayers either on a recorder or I'm going to write them down. And whoa, I can just tell you, I can just tell you, much to my chagrin, that so much of my praying is for me. <laughs> so much of my faith is for me. And that's not good. That is not good at all. There needs to be another, an other's orientation to our faith. Yes, we're supposed to pray for our own needs. Jesus said as much in the model prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Yes, we are to pray for our personal needs. But if we're, we're going to have a dynamic faith, that is a great faith according to Jesus, then it needs to be others oriented. Amen? There's a second point here as well. And that simply is, we have to get into our heads. And this is almost impossible for American Christians, it is, that we truly do need each other. That's why this is called a community of faith. Now, we're unlike other countries. We really don't need each other for finances. We don't really need each other to live or to eat or anything like that. God has so blessed us and so prospered us that somehow we think that if we don't need each other for material things, that we also don't need each other for spiritual things. But we do, right? We absolutely do. It is incumbent upon us. It's important that we understand that when my faith goes low, you are responsible. You are responsible to help fill up my faith. We have what we call faith fuel tanks, right? And this word we're always putting out our faith, sometimes our faith fuel tanks run very, very low. And if you don't come alongside me and encourage me, and if you don't come alongside and share with me what God is doing in your life, and when you don't come by and just give me some scripture, you know, because faith cometh by hearing and the hearing of the word of God, right? And give me some scripture, then I am going to run on 
Faith exhaust fumes. And how I many you know that's good, not good for anybody? And so actually, I need to have faith for you, and you need to have faith for me. And together, as we deepen the community of faith, our faith becomes stronger and greater in the eyes of the Lord. Now, I'm going to say a qualification here, because we're so good at this, aren't we? We are so good at commiseration, aren't we? We're so good at complaining, aren't we? We're so good at woe is me, aren't we? Because as Christians, we love people, and uh, you know what? We care for people, and we're very empathetic, and we're very compassionate. But let me just say, let me just say, when I'm feeling down, when my faith goes down, when I'm singing the woe is me blues or any other country western song played backwards, okay? When I get into that mode, I need you to come and be empathetic for about 12 seconds. Because I know it's very easy for me to have a woe is me pity party, right? How I many you know that's the opposite of faith? Now, I have a good brother, and sometimes I don't think he's very good to me, right? So when I get in, into that mode that life is terrible, the church is terrible, the people in the church are terrible, I'm terrible, everything's terrible, I just want to die and get the heck out of here, he'll say, are you done yet? And I'll say, I guess, there's not many more, you know, more terrible things than that. And they'll say, all right, are you ready to buck up your faith? Are you ready to stop being a big baby? All right. You have the greatest Lord, the greatest word, the greatest community, the greatest church. God has called you. God has gifted you. God has blessed you. You got God on your side. If God before you, who can be against you? So the best thing you can do is just shut up and ignite your faith. Amen? How I many know we spend way too long, way too long, talking about how bad it is? Right? And we start talking about how bad it is. We make our problems bigger than God. And every time we make our problems bigger than God, what happens to us? Right? Our faith starts leaking. A little more, 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 more. And so God has called us together. Look at somebody right now. Look at it right now and say, you're my faith partner. You're now designated. Go. I coordinate you as my faith partner because when it comes to faith, I need all the help I can get. And so that's what he did. He exercised his faith for the benefit of others. What an amazing, an amazing man. And then the third thing, or the third reason why uh, Jesus said this man had great faith was simply that his faith was countercultural. His faith was countercultural. A quick scan in the Gospels reveals that Capernaum was one of the most unbelieving cities that are listed in the New Testament. They had a rabid culture of unbelief. I want to read for you a scripture that we find a little later in the book of Matthew. In Matthew eleven twenty three, listen to this. Capernaum, you will be lifted up to the skies, question mark, because they were so arrogant and prideful. He says, no, you will go down to hell. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. Capernaum, as an official city, went extinct in the 11th century A.D. 
But how many do you know that when God compares you to Sodom, you better invest in and be wearing uh, asbestos swimwear? Let that sink in. I know it will take a moment, okay? But in the midst of such an unbelieving culture, rises up a man who says, I don't care about the culture. I don't care what other people think. I am going to believe in Jesus Christ and who he is and what he can do. Amen? How many know it's quite easy to be unbelieving? That's our natural gravitational pull, spiritually speaking. How many know it's really, really easy to be negative? Like I said, it doesn't take a brain surgeon or a rocket science scientist to come in and talk about all the things that are wrong here. Anybody can do that. In fact, the demons do it every day, right? Anybody can walk in, how's it going today? Same old, same old. Wow, you're inspiring me by that life of faith. Wow, it's so incredible. But who is the person who can walk in and say, God is doing great things in my life. God is doing great things in my church. God is doing great things in my nation. God is looking for a countercultural faith. And as I said in the introduction, we are to be the most faithful and the most faith-filled people of all people on the planet. Amen? Jesus loves faith. He loves when we exercise it, when we didn't even know we could. He loves seeing people latch on to who he is, his promises. He loves when we emulate, when we model the Abrahamic faith, as Paul talked about in Romans 4.21. Abraham, who was expecting God to give him a child along with his wife Sarah at a very, very, very old age. You ever hear about kids being born in the nursing home? Well, that's what was going on. But we're told in Romans 4.21 that Abraham believed that God was both willing and able to do everything that he has promised. Everything. Are you that kind of Christ follower? Am I? Are we that kind of church? That we believe God can do all that he had promised for us in the community of faith together. One of my favorite organizational gurus was a good old Catholic man. His name was Peter Drucker. And he had a saying that he was quite fond of saying, and that was, the culture eats strategy for breakfast. And what he was saying was that a healthy culture is much more important for organizational life and success than strategy. In fact, strategy is really unimportant compared to having a healthy culture. So what I want here, this Advent season and beyond, is for us to develop a great faith culture here at Bay Point. Amen? I want us to have a great faith culture that impresses heaven itself. Amen?
and Jesus Christ. I want us to develop a great faith culture that not only believes in God, but believes God. How many know there's a difference? <laughs> there's an amazing difference from believing in God and just flat out believing God. And I want us to develop a great faith culture that eats negativity and unbelief for breakfast. Amen? Now, how are we going to get that? How are we going to get that culture? Well, the first thing we're going to do is pray. Amen? How many of you know that faith is a gift? It's a gift. So do what I do. Pray every morning for more faith. And God, who is the bestower of all good things, will grant it. The second thing we have to insist upon doing is when we get down, when we get out, actually is to stop gossiping. Amen, right? How I many know that the devil is the father of gossip? But unfortunately, it's the church's favorite indoor game. It is. But could you imagine if we took every one of our gossips and instead we said, look, God is moving. God is doing great. God will take care of it. God will provide. God will heal. God will. But could you imagine that? Oh, my goodness. It would change the culture overnight in any church. And so what we got to do is really, really, really be diligent of making sure that not only ourselves are all faithed up, but our brothers and sisters that we love and cherish so much in this faith community are faithed up as well. Do the most wonderful ministry that we can do for one another, and that is to impart faith, to share faith, and to fill up each other's faith tanks. Amen? And that way, we will develop a great faith culture that not only inspires each other, but also impresses heaven. Will you pray with me? Good and gracious God, we thank you for our opportunity to even talk about faith and the role it plays and the excitement and in the joy and the overcoming of obstacles and impediments. We thank you, Lord God, that we're going to develop a church. We are developing a church that eats unbelief and negativity for breakfast. And that's our mantra from here on out. So I pray for myself and I pray for my congregation, whom I love so deeply and dearly, that you would just go ahead, go ahead and impart to each and every one of us a tremendous, a deep and abiding and amazing and a great faith that believes you, that trusts you, that loves you, that adores you, no matter what life throws our way. Lord Jesus, be glorified as you were in the life of the centurion. Be glorified in our faith today. And we all said, Amen.